Well, there I was, like wild E. coyote, hanging in midair. Thoughts that went through my head. Was Isaac Newton wrong about gravity? Were the Christian scientists right about all life actually being a dream? Or had the entire earth disappeared and I hadn't noticed? Then gravity took over and even though it seemed like minutes, it was really only a microsecond and my foot found the ground and I stumbled and had to scramble to keep myself from falling. I'd been working on the pergola. I'd been up and down the ladder a hundred times that day. But this time when my foots stepped off the ladder, expecting to find the ground just six inches away, it just kept falling. Now in the post-action analysis, I thought I had descended five steps when I had actually only descended four. And so my foot thought that the ground was only six inches away, but it was actually a foot. Since I wasn't watching, my brain panicked because things were not where I thought they would be. That's how life has felt these last few weeks, not just for me, maybe even for you. I thought we were stepping onto solid ground, safer and more secure. We had 16 months of COVID experience, the latest CDC flyers, watched the numbers of infections and hospitalizations drop, and then we took that final step off the ladder and there wasn't anything but air, and it threw our balance off, and we scrambled not to fall down. So what is it we as individuals, as a church, as a community, as a nation, even as a world, what is it we're expecting? Why is it so important that COVID get behind us? What is so important that we don't feel like we can wait any longer? Putting all the conspiracy theories aside, what do you think the primary goal of most people is right now? After the mayor and governor's announcements, the tourism authority said, you know what, restrict everybody but the tourists. The wedding industry said, restrict everybody but the weddings. And there have been those all along who said, you know what, you cannot restrict the church. And as you read further through the data, there are some alarming trends. You see, it's no secret the big push behind reopening everything is money. And by the way, that includes a lot of churches. But if we got what we wanted, no more masks, no more rules, no more social distancing or limits. What would we do with it? No one has ever liked rules, starting in the Garden of Eden where God told Adam and Eve, you can eat from everywhere and anything except that tree. And from that moment on, the only thing Adam and Eve could think of was what the fruit from that one tree tasted like. When I get to heaven, I want to ask him if it was worth it, if that one taste was worth everything that they went through if it was everything they hoped it would be, and if they could go back and do it over, would they still reach up and pick that fruit? The church throws the word grace around a lot. We're saved by grace. We say trust in God's grace and mercy. We say, let's say grace before we eat. The original definition of grace dating back to the 12th century is unmerited divine assistance given to humans for their regeneration or sanctification a virtue coming from God, a state of sanctification enjoyed through divine assistance. Well, since the 12th century, it has morphed into something far less than those things. Now, believers exist in a state of grace, meant in the original form. There's no way to fully explain it, though. It means we are so immersed in God's love to the point that even as we live and even as we sin, we're still forgiven. 
and our forgiveness is not restricted to a one sin forgiven for every one sin confessed deal with God. If I have to confess every single sin in order to receive forgiveness, I might as well give up now because that's not going to happen. I don't have that good of a memory. My one of my favorite confessions. It begins, some of my sin I know. Some remains hidden from me. And so, God, I'm going to have to trust you to first remind me of those things so I can make them right. But secondly, forgive me even for those things that I don't remember anymore. My favorite personal prayer is, God, forgive me for being stupid and forgive me for being forgetful. We live trusting that God's grace is greater than our sin. And while we are not who we want to be or try to be, God isn't going to let our sins or our failures define us. We are and always have been defined by the cross of Christ. Now, just so you know, living in a state of grace is actually much harder and more complicated than living under the law. Every time I hear somebody say, oh, you Christians are always taking the easy way out, you know, just telling people, well, I'm forgiven. I know that they actually don't have a clue what they're talking about. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Forgive others if you want to be forgiven. Let God have his vengeance on your enemies. You just need to love them. We do all this, by the way, with a smile on our faces and a song in our heart because God loves our neighbor and God wants us to love our neighbor as well. And the only way that's going to happen is by grace. It can't happen any other way. I don't care how many laws are passed. I don't care how strong the laws and the punishment are. It's not going to make us love our neighbor. But grace can Living under the law is relatively easy. Burn down your house if you find any mildew. Buy a replacement cow for your neighbor if you happen to kill his. If your brother dies and doesn't have any children, well, marry his wife and then give him all the credit for any children you have. Don't forget, by the way, no pepperoni pizzas because you can't boil a baby goat in his mother's milk. Those don't, don't sound really easy, but compared with loving your enemy, and letting God take care of everything? Whenever someone hints at them being good enough for God to love, I always like to ask them, so why do you think that? And uh, it usually has less to them actually being good enough for God to love. In other words, they really are that good of people. And usually it has a lot more for, with them to saying, well, I'm actually better than anybody I know, and I'm certainly better than most people in the world. Funny, it's, I seem to have missed that option in the Bible of being better than everybody else as being good enough to be saved. I've mentioned that during high school and college, um, I was a C student who occasionally stumbled into a B or an A minus. I remember taking an exam once in one of those famous blue books. And when it got back, I was so excited because it said 88 on it. And I was like, yes, I got a B plus, except written next to it, it said C minus. And so when I went to the professor and I said, so I got 88 and he goes, yeah. But according to the bell curve, the bell curve tells me how many A's, B's, C's, and D's I can give. And I have to give so many because that's the way the curve works. Now, I didn't know who Mr. Bell was, but I didn't like him very much at all. You see, the thought that even though I had done well, at least well by my standards, but because a bunch of other people did better, I only got a C minus? That didn't make sense until I got into theology class and I saw how the reverse works. The Bible requires perfection. If you want to be saved by living under the law, you have to be perfect, as in zero sins. Not, not too many sins or almost no sins, but zero sins. Now, I realize our Baptist brothers and sisters don't count anybody's sins against them until they're at least 13 years of age. 
but that still would leave me out because I'm pretty sure I sinned at least once during high school and maybe at least once during college. And by the way, Jesus scored 100. Perfect score. And that means everybody else fails because nobody's even close to that. That's the way the sin curve works. It also leads me to wonder if you wish to live according to the law. Do you have to be gooder? And yeah, I know that's not a word. Do you have to score more better if you live longer? Because I'm pretty sure that would lead to stepping off a ladder thinking the ground was right there and discovering it isn't. Because how many gooder things would you have to do? And, and how would you know how many gooder things needed to be done for you to be saved? Oh, and is it possible, which by the way would mean that God is really a mean God, that someone who was just one good work away from being saved, but they died before they got that one work, and then they couldn't go to heaven because that's the way the rules work? See, when I step off the ladder into heaven, I, I don't want any surprises. I, 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 don't, I don't want to just keep falling. Jesus offers an unmovable finish line and ground that is always where he said it would be. Not because of the things we've done, but because of who he is and the things he's done. We are not saved by our good works. We're not saved by our right beliefs. We are saved by grace. In the Gospels, Jesus repeatedly offers grace even to outsiders, those who either remove themselves from the church or those whom the church removed from themselves. Over and over again, Jesus expands his offering of grace. And by the way, not everybody took him up on his offer. But he didn't just make it to the best and the brightest. He offered it to everybody, including those who, well, most people assumed were so far outside of grace that there was no hope for them. Luke says this in his gospel. An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. He said, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus asked, well, what's written in the law? The lawyer answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, do this and you will live. Before Jesus even finished his sentence, the lawyer, though, said, oh, okay, who's my neighbor? Oh, and Luke adds, the lawyer wanted to justify himself by asking this. Jesus is not offering an easy way out to the rich young ruler. He's not offering an easy way out to us. The words, all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength scare me. Because if I am loving God with all of me, there is nothing left of me to love anything else. I mean, think about that for just a minute. If you love God with everything, how would that change your life? I don't know about you, but the second year of the pandemic has been worse than the first. Too many false promises and hopes that got turned into hype and disappointment. I know better than to sing with Annie, the sun will come out tomorrow. But it's what I keep hoping. And yet when I step off the ladder and my foot finds nothing but air. And by the way, when I finally do find the ground, I'm off balance and I desperately am trying to keep myself from falling. It's not good. But this cannot be an excuse for me to just stay on the ladder, afraid to take that last step. I wasn't meant to live on a ladder. I was meant to live on solid ground. And so I have to take the chance, even if for a microsecond, it's a little scary. Because one day, one day the ground is going to be exactly where I thought it was. Until then, I will panic and think crazy thoughts and stumble and fall. Because just like when people ask me, so you live in Hawaii, do you surf? Hey, you grew up in Colorado, do you ski? And my answer is always the same. No but I'm really good at getting up whenever I fall down.
On Tuesday, I was talking to the district office when Kayla walked in interrupting me and she said, you need to go to the Honolulu COVID site right now because according to it, church is over because we can only have 10 people and that includes the people that are staff. I casually took 10 minutes to finish my phone call while my right hand, by the way, was scrolling to the city and county Honolulu mandate page. Sure enough, spiritual services, 10 inside, 25 outside. Now, I didn't panic because we'd already decided to follow the rules, even if they were inconvenient and we disagreed with them. Because it's always easier to manage a decision, meaning I made my decision back then and now I'm just following it, than it is to scramble and try to make a decision. I didn't need to get off the phone because the call actually was important. And if we needed to go online, well, those 10 minutes I spent on the phone weren't going to help any. As it turned out, the city and county just changed wording. And they made churches just like restaurants. They said, oh, by the way, if you've got groups of more than 10, they can't sit together anymore. But as long as you're six feet apart and wearing masks, you're okay. It took us two days to clarify that. And by the way, there was a lot of people on the phone and answering emails that didn't know what a group was. Regardless of what laws are laid before us or whose mouths they come from, whether it's the president, the governor, the mayor, even my parents, we need to ask one question before we react. Why did they make this law? Why did they make this law? You see, if we know why they made the law, and if it really is for our good, even if we don't like it, even if it's inconvenient, it makes it a lot easier to say, I'm willing to follow it. You see, God is the creator of life and the eternity and of all things. Every law he has given is about making this world and our lives a better place, even if we don't understand it. When he says, love your neighbor, if I ask, well, what happens if I don't love my neighbor? It doesn't take a genius to figure out I'm going to spend all my time fighting with my neighbor. I I'm going to be constantly not missing out on sleep. There's constantly going to be worry about what my neighbor might be doing. If I ask, well, what happens if I do love my neighbor? Well, not necessarily fame and fortune, but I'll probably get a few more nights of sleep. Might even get to share a barbecue. Might even get to learn something that helps me understand him or her a little bit better. And it may make things a lot easier for us to be neighbors. And by the way, God gives me the ability to choose. I am always free to disobey his laws and the laws of this nation and even the laws my parents gave me. I can choose to disagree loudly and to fight and to run the other way and to eat that fruit and even eat a pepperoni pizza. And to be honest, sometimes when I do, nothing happens. I get away with it, except that God knows and I know what I did. There are two verses that are important here. Romans 13 that says, obey the government. And Acts chapter 5, we must obey God rather than men. And that means the government. And when you see the tension between those two verses, you discover they, why it is so necessary to live in a state of grace instead of under the law. If we are saved by the law, then we must both live under the law and force others to live under the law. Burning houses that have mold, buying cows for our neighbor, marrying our dead brother's wife, and never, ever eating a pepperoni pizza. And by the way, there's no choice. Do it or die. And this puts a tremendous strain on life, a strain that we don't need. And by the way, a strain that we can't possibly live under. Living in a state of grace opens our eyes to the fact that Jesus died for us because our tendency is to choose death over life. Choose laws over love. Choose getting even over getting ahead.
God chooses life for us, even when we are unwilling to choose it for ourselves. We're going to step off the ladder. That's who we are. Living in a state of grace allows us to do so boldly, because even if we don't know where the ground is, God does. And if we find nothing but air and start to fall, well, God is there to save us, even though we don't deserve it. See, I know I say this is one of my favorite Bible passages a lot, and I know I actually do have a lot of Bible passages, but Ephesians 6, top five, always has been. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. You aren't the enemy, and neither is my neighbor, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've said. You see, the guy who cut me off on the H1, the mayor, the governor. How about the lady in Costco that wouldn't wear a mask and as a result, all of us had to wait outside until they got it settled. I don't know why we are so bent on making one another into enemies and why it is so important that you do everything my way, but it is. And that's why we need Jesus and grace more than we'll ever understand. My paraphrase of this section from Ephesians 6 goes like this. When you look into the eyes of the cashier at McDonald's, the flight attendant on the airplane, the nurse taking your blood pressure, the governor making his speeches, the lieutenant governor just going home, do you see someone that God loves so much that he was willing to sacrifice his son to save them? Before you declare war on them, realize the real enemy isn't someone you can see. And by the way, you're not going to change these people. No amount of facts or yelling will get them to see things your way. But that doesn't mean they can't change if they need to change. It just means that you aren't the one who's going to change them. This is a spiritual war, and so it must be waged in prayer and through worship. Love them because they are your enemy. Pray for them when they persecute you. Look for the good in them, even if it's hard to find. And then commend them into God's care so that you can get on with your life because your life is too important to let other people ruin it. You have been called for far greater things. So don't let all of this stuff keep you from living it. Get used to stepping off the ladder and the ground not being where you thought it would be. But also get used to God being there to catch you because that, well, that's what it means to be living in a state of grace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.